witchcraft in Britain and Europe is a fascinating one, but it's full of myths and misperceptions. In this podcast, we're going to be addressing some of these from as factual an angle as possible, while delving into where some of these misperceptions come from. Who was the Witchfinder General? Psychopathic publican or state-licensed persecutor? Were the Pendle witches and many others really witches? Were they Catholic recusants and wealthy landowners targeted by corrupt magistrates? Was Oliver Cromwell's grandmother really murdered by a local witch, as his family legends have it? Or did she die of natural causes? Did Christian clerics actually step in to try to protect women accused of witchcraft rather than persecuting them? And were five million witches really murdered in the British Isles? Or does this claim result from a misapplication of late 19th century statistics? Myself, Dr Liz Williams, um, the author of Miracles of Our Own Making, A History of Pagan Britain, and Trevor Jones, a local historian, take a look at the history of witchcraft in this new podcast series. It's a history which has been beset by sensationalism and tabloid hysteria, and which is long overdue for a course correction and a hard look at the facts and figures. We take an academic but informal approach, referencing popular culture as well as historical accuracy, and giving a fresh new look to some tired old tales. Now in this episode, I'm flying solo, as Trevor is recuperating after a stroke, but we're looking forward to him getting back on track and joining us once more. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the witches of War Boys. What goes through your mind when you hear the name of Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector? A stern Puritan figure bellowing, and cancel Christmas, like Alan Rickman's sheriff or a misunderstood local landowner who had little choice but to take up arms against a king with illusions of grandeur. Cromwell is a divisive figure in British and Irish history, arousing strong opinions in both his supporters and his detractors, and he is, in my view, deserving of a myth-busting series of his own. I don't think he did call for the cancellation of Christmas, for instance, and he was much less puritanical than many people suppose but possibly there is a podcast out there already which deals with that. Now, without going into the many myths that surround this fascinating figure in English history, we're going to look at an earlier generation of the Cromwell family today and its association with witchcraft. Relatively few people know that the little village of Warboys, situated in the Cambridgeshire Fens, once experienced a witch panic in the late 1500s that resulted in the death of a whole family or that Oliver Cromwell's own grandmother was closely involved. We know this via a write-up by one Thomas Mann in 1593. He wrote it under the guidance of Judge Edward Fenner, who had been the presiding justice over the trial that we're going to look at. The book is called The Most Strange and Admirable Discovery of the Three Witches of Warboys, Convicted 
and executed at the last assizes at Huntingdon for the bewitching of the five daughters of Robert Throckmorton Esquire and diverse other persons, with sundry devilish and grievous torments, and also for the bewitching to death of the Lady Cromwell. The like hath not been heard of in this age. Not the shortest title, but at least it does tell you what it's about. There are two versions of the story, probably by the same writer, and they run to about 50,000 words, so this tale was quite extensively documented. There are copies in the British Library in London, the Bodleian Museum in Oxford, the Norris Museum Library in St Ives, Cambridgeshire, the Folgus Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., and the University of Glasgow Library. There is a mention in the registers of the Company of Stationers of London, which refers to the court case. And there was a popular ballad, a song written about the case too. Unfortunately, we don't have any copies of that left, just the title. This saga began in November 1589, when a little nine-year-old girl, Jane Throckmorton, the daughter of the local squire, began experiencing peculiar fits and seizures. She was new to the village. Her family had moved there only a year before. And this was, I need to stress, originally considered to be a medical problem, not the work of the devil. A urine sample was sent to the local doctor. They wouldn't have done the sophisticated analysis that would be carried out these days, but it wasn't totally unscientific. However, whatever he was looking for, the doctor found nothing. And an account says, sometimes she would sneeze very loud and thick for the space of half an hour together. And evidently, as one in a great trance and sound lay quietly as long, soon after would begin to swell and heave up her belly so as none was able to bend her or keep her down. Sometimes they would shake one leg and no other part of her, as if the palsy had been in it. Sometimes the other, presently she would shake one of her arms and then the other, and soon after her head, as if she had been infected with the running palsy. This was bad enough, but a further problem was that this horrible illness was not confined to Jane. Her four sisters, and then twelve of the family maidservants, also began having seizures as well. Her eldest sister is described as follows. She would screech and groan very fearfully. Sometimes it would heave up her belly and bounce up her body with such violence that she was not kept upon her bed. So this is definitely the exorcist type of reaction. Maybe no one's head swivelled right round, but it doesn't sound far off. Now this was evidently quite a big, prosperous household. I think Throckmorton was a local squire. We don't know why everyone became so unwell. It could have been some sort of virus, like encephalitis, or a form of poisoning, or mass hysteria. We'll look at that a little bit later. But Jane told her father that she had been cursed by a local woman named Alice Samuels. Alice was an old lady, especially in terms of this day and age. She was 76. She had lived in Warboys all her life, and by all accounts she was a little peculiar. But she wasn't an old lady living on her own with a load of cats. She was married to her husband John, and she had a daughter, Agnes. So this was an entire family that subsequently became affected by these accusations. Now, Alice had visited Jane Throckmorton when the little girl had become ill, but Jane reacted badly. Grandmother, look where the old witch sitteth, pointing to Samuel. Did you ever see one more like a witch than she is? Take off her black-thrummed cap, for I cannot abide to look on her. The child's panic was echoed by her sisters. Take her away. Look where she standeth here before us in a black-thrummed cap. It is she that hath bewitched us, and she will kill us if you do not take her away. We can easily imagine how panic and rumour began to spread. 
In Glastonbury, at the moment, very sadly, an elderly man was murdered recently, and the rumour mill has been grinding away at full speed. This is a normal feature of small communities, and Warboys would have been very small indeed, and a lot more insular. No social media, no outside influences, particularly in this part of the Fens. Everyone would have known each other, and everyone would have gossiped. Now, the illness in the Throckmorton household went on for months and months. Richard Throckmorton, the father of the girls, eventually decided that some sort of action needed to be taken. Sir Henry Cromwell, who was the grandfather of Oliver and the son of Richard Williams, the nephew of Thomas Cromwell, who features in Hilary Mantel's novels. Henry Cromwell sent his wife, Lady Cromwell, to talk to Alice Samuels, but the meeting didn't quite go as planned. Alice, perhaps naively, assumed that Lady Cromwell had come to hear her side of the story, and she told it readily. But suddenly, Lady Cromwell snatched up a pair of scissors and cut off some of Alice's hair. Nowadays, this would be considered assault. But in those days, the idea was that if you could burn some of a witch's hair, her magic would be weakened. Lady Cromwell had evidently made up her mind about Alice's guilt before she'd even spoken to her. Alice protested, but her words were used against her in due course. Madam, why do you use me thus? I never did you any harm as yet. It was the as yet that did the damage. But Lady Cromwell paid a high price for her rash actions. That night, she experienced dreadful nightmares, including one in which Alice sent a spectral cat to rend her flesh. She woke in a sweat and then fell seriously ill in turn. She never recovered. She died two years later. This was a serious situation. Lady Cromwell's death was treated as murder. Alice actually confessed to a local parson, but then retracted her confession the following day. She was taken before the Bishop of Lincoln, where she confessed once more. Alice, her husband John, and daughter Agnes were arrested and tried at a court in Huntingdon. They were found guilty and hanged. After this, the Throckmorton women made a full recovery. Although it is said that Robert Throckmorton's wife died not long after and he left the district with his family. Retrospective proof, you can't see this over the airwaves but I'm using air quotes here, was forensically determined by the jailer who studied the corpses. On the body of Alice he found a little lump of flesh in manner sticking out as if it had been a teat to the length of half an inch, which both he and his wife perceiving at the first sight thereof meant not to disclose because it was adjoining so secret a place which was not decent to be seen, yet in the end not willing to conceal so strange a matter, and decently covering that privy place a little above which it grew, they made open show thereof unto diverse that stood by. Now, unfortunately, genital warts and other anomalies are not uncommon, especially in women who do not have regular access to a doctor. But as we've seen in previous cases, such as that of the Witchfinder General, these physical malformations were used against women in order to prove their malevolence. The American folklore scholar and Harvard professor George Kittredge, who lived from 1860 to 1941, believed that the War Boys trial was the most momentous witch trial that had ever occurred in England. He said that it had demonstrably produced a deep and lasting impression on the class that made laws. And he also thought that the trial had influenced the passage of the Witchcraft Act of 1603. This was the act that the Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins, later cited to justify his own persecutions. 
and it was brought in by James I. The Act sought to bring the penalty of death without benefit of clergy to any individual who invoked evil spirits or communed with familiar spirits. The Act's full title was An Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits. It widened an earlier Elizabethan Witchcraft Act, but both acts served to change the law by making witchcraft a felony. This meant that the accused person was now tried in a common law court rather than an ecclesiastical court, so you were tried by the law of the land, not by the law of the church. In a way, this was positive because it meant that the person was tried by criminal procedure. But we're not really talking CSI 1600s here. Forensic evidence, like the witch marks, relied as much on superstition and prejudice as they did on scientific inquiry. And now a word from the show's online sponsors, the Witchcraft Shop in Glastonbury, where you can find all your witchy, pagan and alternative health supplies, including incenses, oils, herbs, candles, wands and altar items. Or maybe even take a tarot reading. The Witchcraft Shop also offers courses in practical magic and conducts hand-fasting and pagan ceremonies for celebrants. Many other products and services are also available on request. Visit www.witchcraftshop.co.uk and tell them Witchbusting sent you. Unlike the continent and Scotland, witches were not burned at the stake under either of these acts. They were hanged, as we've seen in the cases we've looked at so far. The exceptions were cases which involved petty treason. If you were convicted of this and of witchcraft, you were burned. If you were convicted of a minor witchcraft offence, you'd most likely be sentenced to a year in prison. But if you were accused again and found guilty of another offence, you'd be sentenced to death. The legislation at the time of the War Boys case stated that the penalty for damage caused to persons or their property by witchcraft was one year's imprisonment and being pilloried for six hours once in every quarter of that year for the first offence. For any subsequent infraction, an offender faced the death sentence. But if you were convicted of murder by means of witchcraft, the penalty was the ultimate one. If any person or persons after the first day of June next coming use, practice or exercise any invocations or conjurations of evil and wicked spirits, or to for any intent or purpose, or else if any person or persons after the first day of June shall use, practice or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed, shall suffer pains of death as a felon or felons. And this is what convicted the witches of war boys. Now, these pieces of legislation were followed by further witchcraft acts, and this didn't really change until the 1700s, when a more enlightened social climate started treating witchcraft as a form of con artistry, and people convicted under it were sentenced to prison and fines rather than death. And this demonstrates how beliefs in magic had changed. I think we're going to look at that in a future podcast. Now, the actual Witchcraft Act of 1735 remained in place all the way until 1951, when it was repealed and replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act. And this, in turn, was replaced in 2008 with a set of consumer protection laws. The War Boys case has featured in several examples of modern fiction. 
The following comments come from author Jill Dawson, whose novel The Bewitching features the case. The illness these girls suffered from, hallucinations, fits, losing their appetite, has much in common with other mystery illnesses which seem to particularly beset girls, such as the sleeping refugee children of Sweden or American high school children with contagious seizures, studied by neurologist Suzanne O'Sullivan. What was really going on for the five Throckmorton daughters? There were five girls, and the first very casually says, Alice is the reason I'm having these fits. And what's so fascinating is that everybody believed her. So the whole case, which is true and comes to a very shocking ending, is started by these girls and continued by these girls. They just keep saying, yeah, she's a witch, she's bewitching us. She's the reason we're sick. They were all sort of getting these fits and transfers. And it's a hundred years before Salem. So it's got real similarities, but it's not the same. And I suppose it just fascinated me, wondering what would make them do that, if you like. What were the issues between the posh squire's family with the five daughters and the poor neighbour, Alice Samuel? And information about it is all contained in one long historic document, which is a pamphlet, but it keeps saying there were no other issues and that Alice absolutely was a witch. So I investigated more about why the case had such currency, and it's partly because the Cromwells got involved. Dawson then raises a point which we looked at in the case of the Pendle witches, and it's not uncommon in the witch trials. She goes on to say, There were no witch finders in the war boys case. This was an occasion of girls and women accusing other women of being witches, and men taking up the attack with enthusiasm. This is a surprising but common aspect of much of the witch accusations, that many of the accusers were also women. Those accused of being witches were 85% female and often old too. In writing The Bewitching, I was interested in power, says Dawson. Who has it, who seeks it, how it plays out in rural places and small isolated communities, how men wield it, how women and girls might try to seize it, presenting teenage girls as seductive, demonic and powerful, as they are in Arthur Miller's The Crucible or Stephen King's Carrie, seem to me laughable when you consider that all judges, church leaders, pamphlet writers, scholars, demonologists, executioners, and those presiding over the trials, indeed over life and death, were male. If it was not their innate evil or sexuality, what was it that made the five Throckmorton girls and their visitor Lady Cromwell pick on their neighbour Alice and send her and her family to their ghastly fate? Now, rumours started to spread after the hangings that a miscarriage of justice had been perpetrated. Local people were saying that this mother Samuel now in question was an old simple woman and one that might make her, by her fair words, confess what they would. Writer Samuel Harsnett described The Witches of Warboy's pamphlet as a very ridiculous book concerning one of Throckmorton's children, supposed to have been bewitched by a woman of Warboy's. So what? actually happened to the Throckmorton girls? This is something we can never know. There is some evidence, I think, that hysteria is contagious, and thus that the girls might have been influenced by one another, kind of winding each other up. They may also have been suffering from some sort of physical illness, as we considered earlier, like a virus or poisoning. Jill Dawson says, My sense was that there was something going on within the family, or that's what I present in the bewitching, that was very troubled and the girls were profoundly affected by that. If you're someone who believed in witchcraft, and people still do the world over in different cultures and countries, you could believe that that's what's going on. And if you don't, I shouldn't offer another explanation as it may be a spoiler. 
This is a powerful story to uncover, and I want it to be a page-turner for readers. However, we may not want to discount the possibility that the girls might actually have been under some form of psychic attack. Dion Fortune, one of the 20th century's greatest occultists, claimed that she had been attacked by both real and spectral cats sent by Moina Mothers, the head of the Alpha et Omega Lodge to which both women belonged. Dion also accused Mothers, leader of the Alpha and Omega Temple, of the murder of Netta Fornario through psychic attack, even though Mothers had actually been dead for some months by then. Netta was a friend of Fortune's, and her body, naked except for a black cloak, lying on a cross cut into the turf and covered in scratch marks, was found in a remote location on the island of Iona, where she had been staying in order to conduct some healing work. This is in the early 20th century. Fortune claimed that the scratches, which we must note she did not actually see herself, were similar to those experienced by people who had been previously psychically attacked by Moina Mathers. Netta, however, had been behaving strangely when she arrived on the island and appears to have been experiencing hallucinations. She was only 33, but she'd taken to roaming the island and attempting to contact spirits. It's actually likely that she died of exposure, and crucially, early accounts of her death do not mention the scratches. Philip Almond, author of The Witches of War Boys, an extraordinary story of sorcery, sadism and satanic possession, says, in spite of its quite different worldview, it is also a story which seems familiar to us, for it is a narrative of unforeseen accidents and illness, of unexplained deaths, of conflict between neighbours, of accusations by children against adults, of the power and influence of the wealthy and the well-connected, and of the vulnerability to false accusations of the powerless in society. Although we no longer look to witchcraft as the cause, all too often we too are confronted by the inexplicable, the accidental and the serendipitous. What actually happened at Warboys? Was it a case of actual witchcraft, hysteria, poisoning, an outbreak of malice or social injustice which got out of hand? We will probably never know and we can only surmise how the story might have been told to Lady Cromwell's grandchildren, including her most famous grandson. In the still of the night, if you're quiet you might just hear her word. The sound from the trees is your name on the breeze.
is a remote highway media production. It's produced by Ross Hemsworth. The theme music, Night of the Witch, was written and composed by Ross Hemsworth and performed by Lenny Savage. <laughs>